Hi everyone, it's Joe Wigand from Medora, North Dakota, gateway to Theodore Roosevelt National Park and home to the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation. With their help, we're starting Teddy Talks. The April program is called 26 Days with the 26th President. Each and every day, I'll be reading at length from some of what uh, Theodore Roosevelt wrote and spoke during his lifetime. Uh, as we go through, uh, I hope that you'll understand why Theodore Roosevelt at the State Fair in Minnesota on Labor Day 1901 told the people there to speak softly and carry a big stick. You will go far. Teddy Talks are proudly presented by the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation in Medora, North Dakota. To learn more about visiting or supporting our mission to connect people to the Badlands for positive, life-changing experiences, go to Medora.com. Now, enjoy the pod. Good morning and welcome to Teddy Talks for this Wednesday, May 20th, 2020. I'm Joe Wiegand, coming to you from Medora, North Dakota, gateway to Theodore Roosevelt National Park, home of the world-famous Medora musical, and this weekend, again, the Teddy Roosevelt Show. I have, for 15 years, uh, studied and traveled and performed as Theodore Roosevelt all across the United States. A great honor to do so in the early portion of my travel studies and performances at the White House for Theodore Roosevelt's 150th birthday. Uh, that was October 27, 2008. There I had a wonderful time, not only with my wife Jenny, but with Randy Hudson Bueller, uh, the president then and president still of the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation, headquartered here in Medora, offices in Bismarck, each and every year for 55 years, uh, first through Harold Schaefer's Gold Seal Corporation, and then later through the uh, Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation, established by Harold Schaefer, his family, and the people of North Dakota. Uh, that Medora musical's been held in the summer at the Burning Hills Amphitheater, predating the Medora musical Old Four Eyes, in its last year, starring my good friend from Fargo, Marty, Martin Jonasson. Marty uh, uh, played a, a young man as Theodore Roosevelt here, 23 years old, I think Marty was at the time. Theodore Roosevelt was 25 when he came here to the Badlands. He would later say that uh, this is where the romance of his life began. Uh, told a friend and colleague that if you were to take away from him every memory of his lifetime and save him but one, the one that he would choose to remember would be of his time here, ranching along the Little Missouri. And he told the people of Fargo, Theodore Roosevelt did, in 1911 touring the country that he would have never been president but for his experiences here in North Dakota. So that may explain why the state of North Dakota and others from throughout the country are planning to build the Theodore Roosevelt Presidential Library and Museum here in Medora, North Dakota. Uh, we uh, have been here at Teddy Talks, trying to bring, bring to life the words of Theodore Roosevelt. It's a different thing. My performance, uh, I do with Theodore Roosevelt, uh, aspire to do with the character of Theodore Roosevelt, 
what Hal Holbrook, the uh, wonderful American actor, has done with the character of Mark Twain. We know the writings of Mark Twain, the writings of Samuel Clemens. We know uh, our sense of his flesh and bone and personality is interpreted to us by, uh, uh, by Hal Holbrook. Uh, I hope to bring Theodore Roosevelt to life in some way through an entertainment, but it's his own words. It's what he said and then did uh, that corresponded so directly with what he said uh, that made him Mount Rushmore worthy and made him a, uh, a, a, a person uh, who gained a great deal of support from the American people for his agenda and then in traveling the world was uh, lauded in Europe as a representative of the American people. We'll get to some of that as we review some of these dates in history, but I'm glad to announce that we will, uh, in addition to uh, what we've done with the Bully Pulpit Golf Course, with the Badlands Pizza Saloon, everything's being done under the guidelines here of North Dakota Smart Restart. We'll continue to do so even as we have a performance Saturday night and Sunday night, 7.30 p.m. Mountain, at the Old Town Hall Theater. Uh, we'll, uh, uh, if you uh, come for one of those shows, purchase your tickets online. The seating in that 204-seat theater will be limited to 55 or so uh, uh, individuals. So what we've got planned is to proceed, well, let me put it this way. In 1933, uh, Cousin Franklin, in his inaugural address as President of the United States, he, uh, in the midst of that Great Depression and with overwhelming support of the American people, he reminded us that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Uh, studying the religions of the West and the East, uh, my own Christian faith, it seems that uh, we are so very often counseled against fear and worry. At the same time, in that year 1933, one of Franklin Roosevelt's administration's responses to the Depression was the Civilian Conservation Corps. The idea of national service to the country, and in this case, employment of young men and their dispersion out throughout the United States and their training and skills. Here at Theodore Roosevelt National Park, though these projects predated the uh, national park, this was national forest and still public lands in, in so many areas and ways, uh, there was tourism still here in the uh, in the area and so the civilian conservation corps during the great depression had three different companies of the ccc uh, located here in the badlands sponsored by the north dakota state historical society uh, from those camps those men built the uh, uh, the uh, river bend overlook in today's north unit the the wonderful stone and wood building uh, that many of us hiked down to in looking over that big bend. Uh, a couple of the uh, shelters in the Juniper Campground in the North Unit date to the Civilian Conservation Corps days, as did the historic eastern entrance, uh, since abandoned for the new entrance to the south unit of the park. But I do believe when my friend uh, Joyce and Williston mentioned being a, a child at those dedication ceremonies uh, uh, in June of 1949, if I recall, uh, those ceremonies were held at that eastern entrance. Uh, the entrance pylons and, and station were built by the Civilian Conservation Corps, as was uh, much that's at our uh, Damore Park, uh, uh, the base for the statue, the, the uh, uh, wall work and iron work there, some of the uh, work out at the Chateau Damore State Historic Site from the Civilian Conservation Corps. Uh, it's uh, the alliteration there, the uh, the acronym, the, the, the three C's. 
As the Medora community moves forward, we are going to be guided by North Dakota's Smart Restart and also by our own three C's. Uh, we're going to be clean. Uh, everyone's going to be wiping things down and washing hands and using disinfectant and antibacterials. Uh, we're going to be careful. We're going to do things uh, in a smart way that uh, first starts with thinking through uh, social distancing, uh, eliminating uh, items that might be uh, touched. Uh, we're also going to be considerate. We're going to be clean, careful, and considerate. We're going to make sure that we want you to feel comfortable when you're here. So we're going to do everything we can to be considerate uh, of what it means uh, to uh, live up to our obligation in hosting people, even at a distance. I'm afraid for the first time, uh, uh, Teddy Roosevelt will be uh, uh, show will be conducted without the wonderful joy I have in shaking hands with audience members after a performance. So do come to Medora, join us here this Memorial Day weekend. We'll practice our three C's under the rubric of uh, North Dakota Smart Restart, and we hope that you'll join us here. Today's date in history references some of the things that were on my mind. May 20th, 1497, we're going back to the age of exploration for our first two mentions. You might have learned of John Cabot, sailing the uh, uh, northeastern coast of what is today uh, the United States and Canada, out in the areas of uh, Newfoundland, uh, Newfoundland, Nova Scotia, and uh, Maine, perhaps. Uh, he sailed from, uh, from Bristol, England on this date. Some records claim May 2nd, but most say May 20th is the date. Uh, his uh, real name, though, I did not know this, Giovanni Camato. Uh, he was indeed uh, uh, born, uh, uh, well, he's from uh, Italy. Uh, what, uh, what particular place in Italy, I, I did not make note. But it's interesting that uh, while we celebrated most recently the 500th anniversary of Cabot's expedition uh, in uh, 1997, the uh, Canadian and British governments uh, elected Cape Bonavista in Newfoundland as representing Cabot's first landing site and his uh, prominence in Canadian history, so much so that if you travel northwest of us, that's out to Edmonton, Alberta, 13 hours by car, you'll find a park, Giovanni Cabato Park. Uh, we mentioned that uh, the Canadians were ahead of us in establishing a National Park Service, and, and they were uh, ahead of me in remembering Giovanni Cabato. May 20th, 1506, uh, in Castile, Spain, Christopher Columbus, the Italian explorer who discovered the Americas, uh, born in Genoa, uh, he died in Spain. The uh, Mecklenburg Declaration, and in the controversy of history, sometimes referred to as the Mecklenburg Resolution, May 20th, 1775. In irony, uh, this is uh, in Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, North Carolina claims to have been the first state to have declared its independence, uh, and the people of Mecklenburg County, each militia company having sent two representatives to a uh, convention. Uh, on the evening of May 19, 1775, it came to those convention delegates assembled, news from the previous month of the uh, Battle of Lexington uh, having occurred uh, uh, up north. And, and so the, uh, uh, the uh, 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 delegates elected there decided the following morning to declare their independence, or the resolution argument would say that they uh, declared their uh, their list of grievances uh, with the king. They did so in Charlotte, in Mecklenburg County. That's named for Charlotte of Mecklenburg. 
the wife of King George III, the king against whom they were protesting and the king against uh, whom the Declaration of Independence would list a, uh, a series of indictments of his behavior that prompted uh, independence. If you look at the state of North Carolina flag and the state of North Carolina seal, you'll see two dates uh, prominently displayed. The first is uh, May 20th, 1775, uh, referencing uh, the Mecklenburg Declaration or, or resolutions. The other is April 12th, 1776, when the North Carolina Assembly or Legislature, Provincial Congress, instructed its delegates to the convention in Philadelphia to vote for independence. Uh, on May 20th, 1806, the birth in London of John Stuart Mill, English economist, civil servant, and philosopher, would die in 1873 in Avignon, France, considered one of the most influential English-speaking philosophers of the 19th century, and a great deal of what he did uh, 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 was with regards to uh, political, eco uh, political economy, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the concepts of uh, utilitarianism developed. Uh, a member of the Liberal Party would serve some terms in Parliament and become the second member of Parliament to call for women's suffrage in 1832. May 20th, 1818, on this day to the birth in Onondaga County, New York, of William Fargo, American businessman and politician, the former mayor of Buffalo, New York, during the Civil War, co-founded his namesake, Wells Fargo, first as an express company, would also then found and be president of American Express, and he would be a director of the Northern Pacific Railroad. And when the Northern Pacific Railroad uh, successfully came across the Red River of the North and began to make its way westward from what had been called Centralia, the little village in 1871 was renamed Fargo. So that uh, little city, uh, it's not such a little city in uh, the scale of North Dakota, it's our largest city, uh, some 125,000 people or more living in, in Fargo. And of course, the, the one spot in the state of North Dakota, other spots as well, but that's the one spot where the numbers uh, have been uh, uh, pretty steady and uh, dramatic, uh, but uh, definitely within the uh, ability of the great hospitals and healthcare people, our doctors and nurses and the state health officers. Uh, uh, but uh, Fargo is on our mind today, the birthday of your namesake in, uh, in New York on that date. May 20th, 1834, uh, the uh, death of the Marquis de Lafayette, uh, Marie Joseph Paul Yves Jacques Gilbert du Mortier, Marquis de Lafayette. There could have been no more prominent uh, hero uh, in our Revolutionary War, uh, perhaps, than George Washington. Came at the age of 19 as a wealthy nobleman from France. He was made immediately a major general, was wounded at the Battle of Brandywine returned to France advocating French support for the American Revolution. Successful, he returned, took up uh, leadership in the United States uh, uh, in, in the French and American forces, and uh, would uh, be uh, involved in the surrender of Cornwallis at the Battle of Yorktown. He came back to the United States uh, in 1824, helping the country to celebrate the 50th anniversary of independence, had a great tour of the country, and at uh, Bunker Hill grabbed some soil that he said would lay atop his grave uh, when he would be buried later in life. His uh, namesake, uh, uh, Lafayette College, is in eastern Pennsylvania. Uh, all of the Fayettevilles and uh, Fayette counties, the Lafayettes, and including uh, uh, Fayetteville, North Carolina, which he visited on that tour, 
uh, his uh, uh, name for uh, Lafayette. A great deal between the French and American people that uh, is remembered in his name. And you might even recall that the, uh, uh, the Lafayette Escadrille uh, was a, a squadron of the French Air Service during the First World War, composed largely of American volunteer pilots before we got into the war, including famously some African Americans uh, who had uh, come to the uh, service of the French prior to our own uh, doing so. Well, May 20th, 1861, on this date, the state of Kentucky proclaims its neutrality and North Carolina seceded. It would be, uh, of course, uh, in their minds in North Carolina, given the history of the Mecklenburg Resolution, uh, to make such a, uh, a resolution on May 20th. May 20th, 1862, President Abraham Lincoln signs the Homestead Act into law, opening 84 million acres of public land to settlement the uh, Homestead Act would be amended several times through its history. During Theodore Roosevelt's administration, amendments would be made in 1904, uh, again in 1909, that allowed for larger acreage rather than the 160 acres uh, standard in a homestead under the previous laws. Uh, this increased to uh, 620 acres uh, in Nebraska in 1904 and, and uh, up to 320 acres in 1909 acreage that were in marginal areas or in Nebraska in the Sand Hill region that needed more irrigation where 160 acres was no longer practical, uh, but still attempting to get the individual homemaker and homesteader out onto the land. And a real delight here in Medora when so many after a performance state that one of the prized possessions of the family is the homestead deed, uh, which would be granted after uh, uh, meeting uh, the three requirements uh, uh, to, uh, uh, to live on the land, to improve the land, and to pay a small fee to the government after a period of time. The Homestead Act, one of the great acts of the Lincoln administration, along with the Railroad Act, and all too often uh, forgotten uh, in the uh, midst of uh, studying the Civil War. The uh, Homestead Act, by the way, uh, continued until 1976. Uh, it was discontinued in 76. Uh, it continued for another decade in Alaska. Every now and then I read of someplace like the state of Minnesota that has a state homesteading effort as they did up in their northern region a couple of decades ago as the uh, lumber region was emptying out. May 20th, 1873, ah, Levi Strauss and his partner Jacob Davis receive a U.S. patent for blue jeans with copper rivets. And thus, in a uh, uh, knitting together of a tailor from Reno, Nevada, who came to us uh, from Riga, Latvia, and a, a, a cloth manufacturer in San Francisco uh, from Bavaria. Uh, we have our American blue jeans. May 20th, 1901, our speech today, the two Americas. Uh, just to move out quickly through a little bit more history, May 20th, 1902, Cuba gains independence from the United States. Thomas Estrada Palma becomes the country's first president, uh, and it would be that president that would request American troops to return uh, during TR's administration for a another uh, a brief uh, near years long occupation to restore civil order and then uh, to leave again to leave the cubans to their own we have also uh, in may 20th 1903 the great tour of the western states continues by president theodore roosevelt brief whistle stops redding dunsmuir sisson montague and hornbrook california may 20th 1908 perhaps again a little personal indulgence the birth of james stewart the American actor uh, known as Jimmy Stewart, 
When we mention Frank Capra's films and two of my favorites, It's a Wonderful Life and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, of course, uh, Jimmy Stewart in the lead uh, role in each of those movies. May 20th, on this date, 1910, the funeral of King Edward VII of the United Kingdom. Uh, he buried in uh, London on this date, or at least the funeral held on this date. The burial may have been separate, I think. Theodore Roosevelt, uh, being uh, touring Europe at the time of the King's death, requested by President Taft to be the head of the official American uh, legation uh, the, uh, to the uh, funeral. May 20th, 1932, Amelia Earhart takes off from Newfoundland becomes the world's first solo non-stop flight across the Atlantic by a female pilot, landing in Ireland the next day. Fairly certain that uh, these dates, May 20th, 21st, are also uh, closely associated with Charles Lindbergh's flight across the United States, which you may know originated at Roosevelt Field uh, in uh, on Long Island uh, and uh, uh, no longer uh, in action. Uh, named for Quentin Roosevelt, and uh, it was uh, it, it's there now that there's a, a great uh, Roosevelt Mall, I think is the, the name of the mall. Thanks for indulging me. I like to start my day thinking about from whence we've come, and then we get busy uh, where, we're, where we are. We, we do what we can with what we have where we are, and that's what we're going to be doing here in the beautiful community of Medora. So this speech was given on the inaugural day, the opening of the Pan-American Exposition, planned for years by the leading citizens of Buffalo, New York, uh, hosting the world in the grand tradition of world's expositions. Uh, uh, we know them in our country from uh, Philadelphia and Chicago and, and uh, uh, later the uh, Pacific Panama Expositions in San Diego and San Francisco, celebrating the completion of the Panama Canal. But uh, in between, uh, the uh, exposition in Buffalo. We use the phrase the inaugural, uh, the, the uh, opening of the uh, exposition. And then of course in September in that same city and related to the exposition, the inauguration, the inaugural of uh, President Theodore Roosevelt because it would be at this exposition that President McKinley would be shot on September 6th by a cowardly anarchist and then uh, die on the morning of September 14th and. That same morning, Theodore Roosevelt racing down Mount Marcy and getting to North Creek Depot, being informed there along the banks of the Hudson River that he was now the president, and traveling by train to Buffalo, paying condolences to Mrs. McKinley. And then in the uh, home of Ainsley Wilcox, an attorney and friend in Buffalo, taking the oath of office. Today, that history is kept alive by the Theodore Roosevelt inaugural National Historic Site. My dear friend uh, Stanton Hudson, its executive director, and Molly Quackenbush, and Barbara Brandt Berryman, uh, so many, and eventually, and, and uh, initially, the Junior League, uh, the women's uh, organization uh, in Buffalo, saving that building from the wrecking ball. We keep our history alive here, too, and we're looking forward to sharing it with you. Uh, if I may, today, the remarks of Vice President Theodore Roosevelt on this day, 1901, in Buffalo, New York. Today, we formally open this great exposition by the shores of the mighty inland seas of the North, where all the people of the Western Hemisphere have joined to show what they have done in art, science, and industrial invention. 
what they have been able to accomplish with their manifold resources and their infinitely varied individual and national qualities. Such an exposition held at the opening of this new century inevitably suggests two trains of thought. It should make us think seriously and solemnly of our several duties to one another as citizens of the different nations of this Western Hemisphere, and also of our duties each to the nation to which he personally belongs. The century upon which we have just entered must inevitably be one of tremendous triumph or of tremendous failure for the whole human race, because to an infinitely greater extent than ever before, humanity is knit together in all its parts for weal or woe. All about us there are innumerable tendencies that tell for good and innumerable tendencies that tell for evil. It is, of course, a mere truism to say that our own acts must determine which set of tendencies shall overcome the other. In order to act wisely, we must first see clearly. There is no place among us for the mere pessimist, no man who looks at life with a vision that sees all things black or gray can do aught healthful in molding the destiny of a mighty and vigorous people. But there is just as little use for the foolish optimist who refuses to face the many and real evils that exist, and who fails to see that the only way to ensure the triumph of righteousness in the future is to war against all that is base, weak, and unlovely in the present. There are certain th things so obvious as to seem commonplace, which nevertheless must be kept constantly before us if we are to preserve our just sense of proportion. This 20th century is big with the fate of the nations of mankind, because the fate of each is now interwoven with the fate of all to a degree never even approached in any previous stage of history. No better proof could be given than by this very exposition. A century ago, no such exposition could even have been thought of. The larger part of the territory represented here today by so many free nations was not even mapped, and very much of it was unknown to the heartiest explorer. The influence of America upon world affairs was imponderable. World politics still meant European politics. All that, is, all that has now changed not merely by what has happened here in America, but by what has happened elsewhere. It is not necessary for us here to consider the giant changes which have come elsewhere in the globe. The treat of the rise in the South Seas of the great free commonwealths of Australia and New Zealand, of the way in which Japan has been rejuvenated and has advanced by leaps and bounds to a position among the leading civilized powers of the problems affecting the major portion of mankind, which call imperiously for solution in parts of the old world which, a century ago, were barely known to Europe, even by rumor. Our present concern is not with the old world, but with our own Western Hemisphere, America. We meet today representing the people of this continent, from the Dominion of Canada in the north to Chile and Argentine in the south representing peoples who have traveled far and fast in the last century, because in them has been practically shown that it is the spirit of adventure which is the maker of commonwealths. Peoples who are learning and striving to put in practice the vital truth, 
truth that freedom is the necessary first step, but only the first step in successful free government. During the last century, we have on the whole made long strides in the right direction, but we have very much yet to learn. We all look forward to the day when there shall be a nearer approximation than there has ever yet been to the brotherhood of man and the peace of the world. More and more we are learning that to love one's country above all others is in no way incompatible with respecting and wishing well to all others. And that as between man and man, so between nation and nation, there should live the great law of right. These are the goals towards which we strive and let us at least earnestly endeavor to realize them here on this continent. From Hudson Bay to the Straits of Magellan, we, the men of the two Americas, have been conquering the wilderness, carving it into state and province, seeking to build up in state and province governments which shall combine industrial prosperity and moral well-being. Let us ever most vividly remember the falsity of the belief that any one of us is to be permanently benefit, benefited by the hurt of another. Let us strive to have our public men treat as axiomatic the truth that it is for the interest of every commonwealth in the Western Hemisphere to see every other commonwealth grow in riches and in happiness, in material wealth and in the sober, strong, self-respecting manliness without which material wealth avails so little. Today, on behalf of the United States, I welcome you here. You are brothers of the North, and you are brothers of the South. We wish you well. We wish you all prosperity. And we say to you that we earnestly hope for your well-being, not only for your own sakes, but also for our own. For it is a benefit to each of us to have the others do well. The relations between us now are those of cordial friendship, and it is to the interest of all alike that this friendship should ever remain unbroken. Nor is there the least chance of it being broken, provided only that all of us alike act with full recognition of the vital need that each should realize that his own interests can best be served by serving the interests of others. You men of Canada, are doing substantially the same work that we of this republic are doing and face substantially the same problems that we also face. Yours is the world of the merchant, the manufacturer and mechanic, the farmer, the ranchman and the miner. You are subduing the prairie and the forest, tilling farmland, building cities, striving to raise ever higher the standard of right to bring ever nearer the day when true justice shall obtain between man and man. And we wish Godspeed to you and yours, and may the kindliest ties of goodwill always exist between us. To you of the Republic south of us, I wish to say a special word. I believe with all my heart in the Monroe Doctrine. This doctrine is not to be invoked for the aggrandizement of any one of us here on this continent, at the expense of anyone else on this continent. It should be regarded simply as a great international Pan-American policy, vital to the interests of all of us. The United States has, and ought to have, and must ever have, only the desire to see her sister commonwealths in the Western Hemisphere continue to flourish, and the determination that no old world power shall acquire new territory here on this Western continent.
We of the two Americas must be left to work out our own salvation along our own lines. And if we are wise, we will make it understood as a cardinal feature of our joint foreign policy that, on the one hand, we will not submit to territorial aggrandizement on this continent by any old world power, and that, on the other hand, among ourselves, each nation must scrupulously regard the rights and interests of the others, so that instead of any one of us committing the criminal folly of trying to rise at the expense of our neighbors, we shall all strive upward in honest and manly brotherhood, shoulder to shoulder. A word now especially to my own fellow countrymen. I think that we have, all of us, reason to be satisfied with the showing made in this exposition, as in the great expositions of the past, of the results of the enterprise, the shrewd daring, the business energy and capacity, and the artistic and, above all, the wonderful mechanical skill and inventiveness of our people. In all of this, we have legitimate cause to feel a noble pride, and a still nobler pride in the showing made of what we have done in such matters as our system of widespread popular education, and in the field of philanthropy, especially in that best kind of philanthropy, which teaches each man to help lift both himself and his neighbor by joining with that neighbor hand in hand in a common effort for the common good. But we should err greatly, we should err in the most fatal of ways, by willful blindness to whatever is not pleasant, if, while justly proud of our achievements, we fail to realize that we have plenty of shortcomings to remedy, that there are terrible problems before us which we must work out right, under the gravest national penalties if we fail. It cannot be too often repeated that there is no patent device for securing good government, that after all is said and done, after we have given full credit to every scheme for increasing our material prosperity, to every effort of the lawmaker to provide a system under which each man shall be best secured in his own rights, it yet remains true that the great factor in working out the success of this giant republic of the Western continent must be the possession of those qualities of essential virtue and essential manliness which have built up every great and mighty people of the past, and the lack of which always has brought and always will bring the proudest of nations crashing down to ruin. Here, in this exposition, on the stadium and on the pylons of the bridge, you have written certain sentences to which we all must subscribe, and to which we must live up if we are in any way uh, our measure to do our duty. Quote, Who shuns the dust and sweat of the contest on his brow falls not the cool shade of the olive. Unquote. And, quote, A free state exists only in the virtue of the citizen. Unquote. We all accept these statements in theory, but if we do not live up to them in practice, then there is no health in us Take the two together always. In our eager, restless life of effort, but little can be done by that cloistered virtue of which Milton spoke with such fine contempt. We need the rough, strong qualities that make a man fit to play his part well among men. Yet we need to remember even more that no ability, no strength and force, 
No power of intellect or, or power of wealth shall avail us if we have not the root of right living in us, if we do not pay more than a mere lip loyalty to the old, old commonplace virtues which stand at the foundation of all social and political well-being. It is easy to say what we ought to do, but it is hard to do it. And yet no scheme can be devised which will save us from the need of doing just this hard work. Not merely must each of us strive to do his duty. In addition, it is imperative, imperatively necessary also to establish a strong and intelligent public opinion which will require each to do his duty. If any man here falls short, he should not only feel ashamed of himself, but in some way he ought also to be made conscious of the condemnation of his fellows. And this, no matter what form his shortcoming takes. Doing our duty is, of course, incumbent on every one of us alike. Yet the heaviest blame for a dereliction should fall on the man who sins against the light, the man to whom much has been given and from whom, therefore, we have a right to expect much in return. We should hold to a peculiarly rigid accountability those men who in public life or as editors of great papers or as owners of vast fortunes or as leaders and molders of opinion in the pulpit or on the platform or at the bar are guilty of wrongdoing, no matter what form that wrongdoing may take. In addition, however, to the problems which under protean shapes are yet fundamentally the same for all nations and for all times, there are others which especially need our attention because they are the special productions of our present industrial civil civilization. The tremendous industrial development of the 19th century has not only conferred great benefits upon us of the 20th, but it has also exposed us to grave dangers. This highly complex movement has had many sides, some good and some bad, and has produced an absolutely novel set of phenomena. Uh, to secure from them, the best results will tax to the utmost the resources of the statesman, the economist, and the social reformer. There has been an immense relative growth of urban population, and in consequence, an immense growth of the body of wage workers, together with an accumulation of enormous fortunes, which more and more tend to express their power through great corporations that are themselves guided by some mastermind of the business world. As a result, we are confronted by a formidable series of perplexing problems with which it is absolutely necessary to deal, and yet with which it is not merely useless, but in the highest degree unwise and dangerous to deal, save with wisdom, insight, and self-restraint. There are certain truths which are so commonplace as to be axiomatic, and yet so important that we cannot keep them too vividly before our minds. The true welfare of the nation is indissolubly bound up with the welfare of the farmer and the wage worker, of the man who tills the soil, of the mechanic, of the handicraftsman, the laborer. If we can ensure the prosperity of these two classes, we need not trouble ourselves about the prosperity of the rest, for that will follow as a matter of course. On the other hand, it is equally true that the prosperity of any of us can best be attained by measures that will promote the prosperity of all. The poorest motto upon which an American can act is the motto of some men down. 
and the safest to follow is that of all men up. A good deal can and ought to be done by law. For instance, the state and, if necessary, the nation should by law assume ample power of supervising and regulating the acts of any corporations, which can be but its creature, and generally of those immense business enterprises which exist only because of the safety and protection to property guaranteed by our system of government. Yet it is equally true that while this power should exist, it should be used sparingly and with self-restraint. Modern industrial competition is very keen between nation and nation, and now that our country is striding forward with the pace of a giant to take the leading position in the international industrial world, we should beware how we fetter our limbs, how we cramp our tightened strength. While striving to prevent industrial injustice at home, we must not bring upon ourselves industrial weakness abroad. This is a task for which we need the finest abilities of the statesman, the student, the patriot, and the far-seeing lover of mankind. It is a task in which we shall fail with absolute certainty if we approach it after having surrendered ourselves to the guidance of the demagogue or the doctrinaire, of the well-meaning man who thinks feebly, or of the cunning self-seeker who endeavors to rise by committing the worst of crimes against our people, the crime of inflaming brother against brother, one American against his fellow American. My fellow countrymen, bad laws are evil things. Good laws are necessary. And a clean, fearless, common-sense administration of the laws is even more necessary. But we need most of all is to look to ourselves, our own selves, to see that our consciences as individuals that our collective national conscience may respond instantly to every appeal for high action, for lofty and generous endeavor. There must and shall be no falling off in the national traits of hardihood and manliness. And we must keep ever bright the love of justice, the spirit of strong brotherly friendship for one's fellows, which we hope and believe will hereafter stand as typical of the men who make up this the mightiest republic upon which the sun has ever shone. A bit of rhetorical flourish, uh, certainly a bit of preaching from the bully pulpit of the vice presidency of all things, Theodore Roosevelt welcoming the world to the Pan American Expo on this date, May 20th, 1901, in beloved Buffalo, New York. So much history uh, and so much history to be made by the people of this country. I hope you'll be able to come to Medora this summer and that uh, the character, the story of Theodore Roosevelt will be able to inspire you to do great and mighty things. This is Joe Wig and uh, I wish you all the best from Medora where we're doing what we can with what we have, where we are in the spirit of Theodore Roosevelt and uh, we wish you all the best. Goodbye, good luck. See you tomorrow here at Teddy Talks. I'll post a little something about the programs to come for the rest of the week. Take care.